Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Today we have a, an amazing guest, Mr. David Clark. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing fantastic. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your day because I know you're very busy with your gym and everything to spend with me. And the, for my listeners, I'm sure they're going to enjoy your story. So before we get started, um, some people may not know about you and what you've done and some amazing accomplishments. Would you mind giving us a little history about who David Clark is? There are people in the world who don't know about me? That's insane. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Um, I, you know, the, the beautiful thing is about my story is that um, I'm one of a million people that has the same story. I just get the privilege of being able to share it on a on a really big way. And, you know, I, I started out, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a, a runner, an athlete um, these days, and a coach and a trainer. And but that wasn't always what I was. And, you know, I got into sports very late in life at 34 years old. Um, I weighed 320 plus pounds at the time. And, you know, my uh, medical conditions and my status listed, you know, it was a, a laundry list of sounded like one of those bad drug commercials where, you know, the side effects could be and then they just go on forever. Well, I had all those, you know, um, high blood pressure and uh, diabetes and a heart condition and I had two herniated discs in my back that I didn't even know about. And, um, you know, I, I was also struggling with alcohol addiction and drug abuse. And and basically anything that I could do from the outside in to try to make myself happy because, you know, I didn't know how to be happy from the inside out. And um, so that meant fast food, drugs, whatever. And um you know how it goes. You can only keep those plates spinning f so long before you die or you get out. And I was lucky enough to get out. And for me, that healing process was twofold. It was getting rid of the alcohol and drugs, the substance abuse problems. And then in the aftermath of that, you know, trying to become healthy again. And really, it was the journey towards health and happiness um, that the fitness found me. It wasn't a, necessarily a journey towards losing weight or, or anything like that. That stuff kind of happened as a byproduct. But, you know, over the last 12 years, I've, I've, uh, I've lost a hundred and, you know, actually, I guess it's 170 pounds now, the new updated total. And I've run about a hundred or so ultra marathons and, um, become a, a trainer and a coach. And I own a gym and kind of live my dream life now. Pretty lucky guy. I think you, made that very simple uh, explanation, but can you give us a little bit deeper yeah. story of how the addiction came about? I mean, you were born, you were, what happened? What was it in your environment that led to that addiction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my life is literally an open book. You know, I, I've written everything that I've been through and every fear and doubt and that I've had along the way down and, and released that. And, um, but I started, you know, my, my childhood, I, I've come to realize there's really no such thing as normal, you know, that that's this, this never-ending illusion that we're all chasing. But, you know, I certainly didn't know that as a kid. And, you know, my circumstances seemed very abnormal to me. And um, we bounced around a lot. My dad's business um, slowly deteriorated to the point where, you know, we lost our house. We lived in campgrounds and rest stops and literally on the road for several years. And, you know, I was kind of taken out of school and, and just really kind of felt detached from reality. And the beautiful part about that is that I, during that, I mean, I had a really loving, supportive, you know, family, you know, that's the one thing we weren't lacking. And 
Um, it's, it's interesting, just as a little side note to that, that after I wrote my book, you know, my, my father mentioned to me that, um, you know, he was almost a little embarrassed that, you know, some of that stuff came out and, and he was, he was proud of it, proud of the book, but, um, just from a, you know, a man's kind of perspective, he was, he was a little embarrassed and thought maybe that people would, would get a bad impression of him. And, and it's been the opposite, you know, of all of the, the addicts and alcoholics and people that have reached out to me after the book, they've more often than not, what I hear is I, I never had what you had, you know, I never had a loving parents. I never had a father who told me that, you know, you can overcome that you can do this. But anyway, I digress, but that's uh, interesting that I had this kind of sense of insecurity in my life, but really I had the most important thing there was in, in, in the love that was surrounding me, which helped me, you know, later in life. Um, but anyway, I, as a, a young adult, um, you know, I, I didn't really get much education bouncing around so much. So I, I got a GED in my, my late teens and went on to community college and, and, um, did really well in school. Um, academically, I, I took a biology and chemistry majors and a computer engineering minor and, and, um, started to slowly kind of reassemble into society, you know, and, and as Faye would have it, I ended up graduating and, uh, getting into business. Um, I worked my way kind of through college in this crazy job of selling mattresses and, and, um, I was good at it. And I, um, I ended up purchasing a, a store, a chain of stores and, um, you know, ended up a uh, very, very long story, cut it down a little bit, um, ended up 29 years old and owned a company that was doing eight plus million dollars a year in sales. And all of a sudden I had all this stuff, you know, that, um, that I thought would be the keys to happiness, you know, houses and cars and money and, you know, adulation and employees and, you know, feeding my ego and, and all that stuff. And, and I was really good at business and really bad at life. And I was very lost, very, very lost human being. And, you know, I had this really inflated sense of who I was. And, you know, I kind of felt I was the smartest man alive, you know, never, never mind the, the glaring obvious fact that, you know, along that process, I was 320 pounds and, and my drug and alcohol use was, was escalating rapidly. I somehow had the ability to ignore all that and point to my bank account as, as proof of how smart I was. And, you know, that, uh, again, like I, like I said earlier, that, that only lasts so long, you know, and eventually that all kind of came tumbling down on me and, and I lost everything I had and, and I went bankrupt and, you know, the, the business responsibilities and things like that did a, a reasonable job at keeping my addictions at bay. And when that went away, I just jumped in, you know, any shred of, you know, pride or, or anything I had just kind of went away and, and it got even darker for, for several years and, and to the point where I was passively aggressively taking, um, suicide attempts, you know, I'd take six or seven Vicodins at night after drinking an entire bottle of scotch and just, it was like, you know, worst case, I don't wake up tomorrow, you know, everyone else would be better off. I kind of believed that. And, you know, through that slow spiral, kind of, I, 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 almost like a, um, you know, the deassembling of a human being, you know, you go, everyone says like, I would never go that low, you know, or I would never let that happen. 
you know, and I write in my book about, you know, I've read a lot of recovery type stories, you know, from athletes and rock stars and, you know, you can, um, you can kind of romanticize that a little bit, you know, and I didn't do that. I went after the, really the most embarrassing, you know, the real story of what an addict looks like, you know, not, not being drunk and riding around in limousines, but, you know, being so drunk that you can't wrap your kids Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. And, and, you know, as that thing happens, you know, one level at a time, right. You don't go from $8 million a year business to bankruptcy and, and getting, you know, passing out drunk in your front yard. It happens one small step at a time. And that's eventually where it took me. And I realized one morning it was, it was a morning, you know, there, there was a thousand other mornings that should have been my last day, you know, but they weren't for whatever reason. And the, my last day was uh, um, August 5th of 2005. And, uh, it was really just a pretty regular day. I woke up and realized that um, this was going to play out one of two ways, you know, that I was going to die, which I wasn't even really that afraid of, honestly. Or, you know, I could show my kids who were three years old, four years old at the time, they were twins, show them what a comeback looks like. And, you know, it, it just, that was this, the slow rebuilding of it. You know, I, I was a student my whole life. I, I did really well in business because I became a student of the sales process and, you know, and, and what, why people buy at one place, why they don't buy at another place. And, you know, in that kind of aftermath of my life, I, I kind of became a student of, you know, why, you know, what, what is it? What is the secret of life that I'm not getting? You know, why, obviously the problem's me. You know, the drugs, the alcohol, the food, that was a symptom of, of a greater problem. So, you know, I, I knew it was somehow attached to my identity and how I saw myself in the world. And I, I went about trying to um, figure out how to see the world differently. That's amazing. So you don't know what the inciting event was. It was just that you just woke up one day and said, this is it. I mean, this revelation type thing. Yeah, I mean, it really was. It was like this moment where... You know, I've often said that, you know, we all kind of know that surrender, hitting rock bottom, you know, the cliches and you know, you have to surrender. But I think sometimes we have like a, a, a weird picture, at least I did, of what surrendering means. And sometimes surrendering means, you know, accepting that there's going to be a fight, you know, and, you're, and you stop hiding from the reality that your life really sucks. And... You know, we always play that game, you know, where it's, well, it could be worse. And, you know, at least I'm not doing X or whatever it is. And there's always someone worse, you know, that I've, I've modified my vision of recovery to say that there is no rock bottom except death. Mm. No, death is the only rock bottom. So you have to get out before rock bottom. You know, you have to decide you're not going there at some point. And that was where I was. I was like, well, I can play this out or I can, I'm going to have to turn around and fight at some point or I'm going to have to give up. And I just decided to fight. Facing the demons straight on, right? That's it. You know, you, you give power to what you try to avoid, you know, and you know, the, the funny part about it was all these, these lessons that recovery taught me, you know really seemed to fit in nicely into running and specifically ultra running, you know, and, um, I don't know why I ended up going that route. It was just something that was appealing to me, but, but it turned out to be a, 
a pretty big blessing because there's recovery taught me about running. It's not the other way around. You know, and I think a lot of times from the outside looking in, it's real easy to say, oh, well, you, you know, you run these really big ultra marathons and had all these kind of epic battles out there. And that is giving you the tools you need to be sober. And that's totally backwards, totally, totally backwards. You know, when you're, when you're standing at in the, the debris of your life, looking forward and you can't, you can't move forward trying to plan your whole life ahead from that moment, right? Like you can't see the way out. There's no way to see it from there. So you have to blindly move in any direction, just away from where you are. And I mean, that's, if that's not the perfect analogy of a hundred miler, I don't know what is, because if you stand at the starting line of like Leadville and think, oh, I'm going to run 50 miles out in the mountains and then turn around and run 50 miles back, I mean, that'll fold you up quick. You know, that's, it's too big to carry. You know, so you have to, you know, trust the process and, and kind of move forward and, and see what happens and trust yourself to to figure it out in flight. And that's what I couldn't do as an addict. You know, I could never trust myself. You know, I had to be constantly moving, couldn't sit still, couldn't trust the process, had to figure it out, you know, which is a joke, you know, because you can't figure anything out. You have, the only control you have is over now. <laughs> exactly. So that's curious. How did you decide, you know, I'm going to run you know, ultra marathons, not just the 5k down the street in the neighborhood, but I mean, these epic hundred mile runs. I mean, most people can't, they, they, <laughs> it's painful to drive a hundred miles, much less run a hundred miles. How did that come about? Well, you know, I could church that answer up, you know, a little bit, but the reality is that's the addict side of me. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and probably more to the point that I, I truly believe that, you know, human beings, we, we respond to the challenge, right? Like we, we're at our best when our best is required. And, you know, to me, I'd lost 50 pounds 10 different times and gained it back. You know, I'd quit drinking, you know, for a month here and a month here. I even went, you know, early in my early 20s, went a whole year. And it was always a temporary fix. You know, it was always because I never, I only took away the behavior and never changed me. So, I wasn't interested in trying to do that again. You know, I knew that whatever my life was going to look like moving forward, it had to be different than anything I'd experienced in the past. So, you know, I wanted something that seemed big, something that seemed like a challenge, something that seemed impossible, something to, you know, kind of rally me. And it wasn't a hundred miler, honestly. I, I didn't even know there was a human being capable of doing something like that. I mean, running... Running any distance to me seemed like a superpower, you know, like flying or, you know, being able to shoot fire out of your hands. You know, I couldn't run more than seconds. So, you know, I, but I did, I did always, for whatever reason, have this, this desire to run a marathon. I didn't know how long a marathon was. I had no idea. Um, but I wanted to do it because it seemed like impossible. And, and it became this kind of daily affirmation, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to use anymore. I'm not going to, alcohol's gotten me beat, you know, and I'm not going to do that anymore. So that means that every action I take moving forward has to be away from that. And it became this simple thing. Like if I could go get on the treadmill and run for 10 or 15 seconds and then walk and then run 10 seconds and walk. And that if I could do that every day, it was, I was kind of like proving to myself that I was serious this time. Cause I would have never done that before. And AA was kind of the same thing for me. Like, um, 
I would not go to AA because, you know, like oh, I'm better than them. They're the ones with the problem, you know, and I'm, I'm smarter than all these people. And just the humility in the act of going, you know, that was as, as important as anything I was actually learning, you know, just that kind of that act of humbling myself. And, you know, I talked about in my book that the first time I went, the first AA meeting I went to, um, I'd been previously and never got sober, but the first AA meeting I went to in this process on this side of recovery was probably the first time that I'd ever really listened to anybody ever that I always just let people talk so that I could dismiss what they're saying and tell them what it was supposed to be, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, it was amazing. And, you know, I, and that brought me so much power that I carried that over into almost everything, you know? And I realized that I'd been able to make all of these amazing things happen early in my life with my business and different things by trying to control and by trying to manipulate. And what I realized is that I really didn't make anything happen. I, what I did was drew all these things to myself that I didn't really need, you know, and that when I became open to what might be out there that I can't see, I found the most beautiful things, you know. And running ultra marathons is one of those things. I never even knew that existed, you know. That's incredible. So how long did it take you to build up to running your ultra marathon? By the way, I, we need to mention <laughs> your book. It's called Out There, A Story of Ultra Recovery, which is amazing. So how long did it take you to build up into that 100-mile point? You know, it's a really long, convoluted journey. Um, but I ran a, my marathon um, was about uh, 16 months or so from August of 2005 to October of um, 2006. So whatever that is, 15 months. Um, and then that's the day after my marathon is actually when I found out that there was such a thing as an ultra marathon. My wife at the time pointed out to me that a guy named Dean Carnassus, she read a newspaper story about a guy who ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. And I'm pretty sure my response was, no, he didn't. <laughs> no, he did not. You read that wrong. You know, like, and that, that got me to look him up. And um, I saw like a YouTube video of him on Letterman. And he talked about his book, Ultra Marathon Man, and I went and bought it. And, I mean, my mind was just blown, you know. And, and Leadville, it talked about Leadville in the book, and Leadville is in my backyard, you know. So, and I read about Badwater and all of these amazing things. And um, I didn't – I wasn't quite there yet, though, honestly. Like, I, I kind of had this premonition that, okay, I'm going to – I know me, and I know I'm going to do this someday. But – it was still too far out there for me to really wrap my arms around. So I was really looking more at like definitely moving on to the next thing, but you know, maybe, um, training for a half Ironman, maybe a 50 miler down the road. And, um, in that second year of my recovery, I got hurt. I had, um, I had spinal surgery and, and was told I needed to give up running. And, and then, and then here I am two years into recovery with that, um, that, that old familiar friend pain medication coming into the picture. So it was really kind of a crazy time. That's incredible. So did you also, you also do triathlons as well? I, I, I've done a few, um, but, but, you know, I, I, I moved on to, to ultra pretty quick. Honestly, when, when I was in the doctor's office and they told me that I should probably give up um, running long distance is pretty much when I decided I was going to, try to run a hundred miles, you know, 
He's just I, like I, the kid. <laughs> the worst <laughs> patients ever. He's like, you don't do this. And you're like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So. Well, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I am done running. You know, I have to accept that possibility, right? But not because you say so. Right, you exactly, know? which not is fantastic. <laughs> so I dedicated myself to running, and, and I became a student of running. And right. I changed my stride and my form my core and all that kind of stuff. Which is so very important. Um, I'm curious though, now we're leaving out a big part about the plant-based diet. How did you find that? How did that enter the picture? So that entered the picture when at that moment, you know, so when, when I was in the doctor's office and going through rehab and having my surgery and I figured that I needed to turn my body into a machine if I was going to be able, because before it was like, the beautiful thing that, that that thing gave me, I say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because up to that point, my recovery, my weight loss, my running, it was all just kind of jumbled together, you know, and I really wasn't sure how the pieces worked separately. And I think I was always instinctively afraid that if running went away, that not only would I gain all the weight back, but I might end up on a bar stool again. And so that forced me to really separate everything out. And, and I had a lot of time on my hands to do it. So, I mean, the, I started journaling. Those first few pages of journaling became the, some of the structure for my book out there. And I realized that um, I'd be okay, you know, that I'd rather be, you know, a 320-pound sober guy than, than an addict who runs ultras, you know what I mean? So it at least caused me to separate the two and realize it'd be okay. And in that aftermath, I was like, okay, but now I'm not going to give up on my dreams. So what do I need to do? I need to be better than I was before. I need to be, you know, they said I, part of the problems I had with my, my back surgery is because my core was weak. So I'm like, ah, well, I'm going to I'm going to have the strongest core of any runner in the world. You know, I'm going to just work on that and I'm going to improve my strides and I'm going to pay more attention. I was eating really clean. I mean, I was eating, I guess you'd call it kind of a paleo type diet. I was eating lots of vegetables and lean meats, but that wasn't good enough for me, you know? And, and I started, you know, hearing about like Scott Jurek and, and different runners and it was totally sports performance. So I'll be honest, it had nothing to do with, with animals or, or compassion that, that evolved slowly. Um, but I decided to just try it for 30 days. I'm like, I'm going to try it for 30 days and see what happens. And, um, I was, uh, I was done with my rehab at that point and I was starting to ramp up my training and, you know, I felt so amazing. I felt like I was on drugs, you know, like I was, I could recover from workouts. My body was, I'd lost 20 extra pounds. I didn't even think I had to lose, and I was, but I was stronger and I was faster and I was lighter. And so I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going with this, you know, and the day I feel like eating a hamburger, I'll eat a hamburger. You know, it's like, I used to joke around cause all my friends would tease me here in Boulder, you know, then they were like, ah, see, you're from New York, but we knew you'd become a hippie sooner or later. And, <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not going to happen. And I got neck <laughs> I scream at hockey games, but I stuck with it and there, it was a slow evolution like everything is, right? Like, again, being open to what's out there. I started paying more attention to, you know, why does the diet work, you know? So I know it works. Why? What are, what is, what is the science behind that? How does the body work? And that spoke to my biology and chemistry background. And, and then, um, 
you know, then eventually, I, you know, things like food matters and forks over knives and all these things that kind of started opening up to me. And, and somewhere along the line, I remember the day, I don't remember what day it was, but I remember the day when I was walking through the grocery store and, you know, you walk down the, the, like the cereal aisle and all that is, is food I don't buy. Right. And that's the way walking through the, like the, the butcher section was, this is just food I don't buy. And one day it wasn't food I don't buy. It was dead animals. And that was really the moment when I knew this was not because of my running or because of taking care of my body. It was something deeper than that. And that I could never go back no matter what. I have reached that same evolution myself over a period of five years. You just find yourself first. It's to help patients get better. And we bring home to the family, my three kids and my husband and, he ended up losing 65 pounds and just some amazing stuff. But then you see the exactly, like I can't even walk through the meat section and not just feel disgust at this point in the cheese and the eggs. It's I, I totally understand what you're talking about. In hunters, when I was in rifle, because I was in rifle, and I get people that hunt and own ranches, and they would I turn them vegan, and before you know it, their feelings like I just don't have a desire to hunt anymore. Like, well, good. Right. <laughs> And that's the beautiful thing about it, right? That decision has to come from them, right? Like, no one was going to make me a vegan. Well, I meant vegan in the sense of eating a plant-based diet to reverse diabetes and cholesterol. But... Yeah. No, I knew what you meant, but, like, yeah. see, even those hunters switch eventually, right? Like, right. like we, we, we are all changed when we're ready, right? Like, and I think we do um, – I think standing in the light is always the best way, whether it's recovery, fitness – plant-based, whatever it is. It's just doing what you do. Never apologize for it. Never hide it. Never try to finesse it, but never, you know, throw it down anyone's throat either. And, you know, they'll come to you eventually. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> I think that's. Yeah. You know, I, everyone's a little different. I am silently and secretly grateful for the people that are out there and pushing it a little harder. <laughs> it's just not my thing. Right. No, I, I, I could never go and, and hold a sign and do anything. But as far as a physician, I tend to be a little bit more pushy as far as this is what you need to do because it could save your life. So, yeah. But I know you have some really interesting things going on. Tell me about the Heron Project and why and how you got involved with that. Yeah. So Chris Heron is a uh, is a really good friend and an amazing guy. Um, for those who don't know, he was a uh, NBA player, played for the Denver Nuggets and the Celtics, and was just a standout superstar high school player standout pro player um but you know dude had demons and you know through an amazing crazy story i would encourage people to check out the espn movie unguarded it's like a documentary i think it's online um i'm not sure where if it's netflix or something but it's called unguarded and it tells his story and he ended up losing everything, and he had a, a $25,000 a month Oxycontin habit at one point. And he was literally, like, scoring dope in the parking lot at the Garden before Celtic games. And eventually, you know, he lost everything. And, you know, when you're not an NBA star, you don't have $25,000 a month for drugs. So it became heroin. And, and it just was able to you talk about someone who just seemed too far gone, you know, and he had 
moment after moment, recovery was there for him. You know, this like it was just there and the perfect chance and with family and kids coming in and, and he just walked away from it over and over again till till one day he got it right. And now he shares his story. He talks in like ridiculous, like 300 high schools a year. He's like every day he's out there doing the work. And this summer I ran across the country with um, five friends and we did it for mental health awareness, PTSD, addiction, depression, and it finished in D.C. And Chris had heard about the run. One of the runners, Pam Ricard, was um, uh, involved with the Heron Project, too. So he came out to the finish, and we sat down and talked in the lobby, and it was like, you know, we knew, I felt like I was talking to, you know, my my best friend that I grew up with, like, even though we had completely different stories, I, I, I'm, you know, never played in the NBA <laughs> and uh, pretty sure he never sold a mattress. Um, we, uh, we clicked, we knew, you know, we just knew how to, how to talk to each other and how to even mess around with each other and joke. And, and when we walked away from it, it was like, we, we got to team up, you know, we got to do something. And, you know, the universe is so much smarter than we are, you know, <laughs> when we're open to things. And at the same time this was going on, I was, um, talking to, a, I had just recently within a year or so become friends with a, a UFC fighter, former UFC fighter named Pat Militich. And he and I, he, addiction touched his life. Um, he never struggled himself, but it touched him really close. And he read my book and he was wanting to do the Leadville 100. It just spoke to him for some reason. And so he said, well, maybe we'll do this thing. I've always wanted to be a fighter. You know, maybe I'll step in the cage and you go do this. And we'll raise a bunch of money for charity. And then when the thing happened with the Heron Project, it was immediate. It was like, well, I mean, I can't imagine what I would raise money for if it's not to support what he's doing. Because their mission is not just all of the groundwork that he does at the schools with the prevention. He has a great thing. He says, like, we always talk about the worst day, like the day we talked about my final day. We never talk about the first day. You know, what was the first day that sets you down the path? So he tries to come at the kids from that perspective. But on the other side of it, the Heron Project supplies treatment for addicts and support for families. So if someone's struggling, they can call the Heron Project and they're immediately going to get assigned a counselor that works with you or with the addict, with the family, helps find the treatment, looks at their insurance, tells them their options. If they don't have insurance, work on treatment scholarships and, and all that kind of stuff. So. And we kind of have a, a mission or an agreement that, you know, my job is not to talk people into going into recovery. You know, recovery is for those that are ready to fight for it. But for the people that are ready to fight and don't have the money to go into treatment, that shouldn't happen. And as much as we're motivated to help others from a sense of love, I can't love someone through heroin treatment. It costs money. So they need money to, to get that. And every dollar we raise directly impacts and gives someone a chance to reinvent themselves. And the thing about addiction is no one has to die from it. It's not cancer. No one has to die. They will, but no one has to. So it's all preventable. So it speaks, speaks directly to me. And, and they have amazing staff over there. So you're training your friend <laughs> to run the Leadville 100. Does he yeah. have any running experience? Basically, no. <laughs> but, I mean, what you know, it's kind of funny because I feel like a kid. Like, what can I teach? Pat is, by the way, a five-time UFC champion, 
Hall of Famer. You know, he's fought the toughest man on the planet. So sometimes I feel a little silly, like, coaching this guy, right? You know, but he he, he is... It, it, using his words, not mine. He is he is equally as afraid of running the Ledger 100 as as I am of stepping in the cage. So it's always about battling the demon you don't know, right? Like, right. So, but it did. Go ahead. I'm sorry. He, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it set up this this kind of amazing friendship, though. That's, you know, I think like the the writers could have a field day with it. You know, like the gods are crazy. Um, we have these these two guys who are like. All I've done for the past 12 years of my life as a recovering alcoholic, addict, and ultra runner is battle myself, right? Like I say that ultra runners make great or addicts make great ultra runners because we know the voices in our head can't be trusted, you know? I've, I've been to the end of me so many times that I finally accepted and realized that the strength isn't going away, you know? I don't have anything to prove anymore. I think initially... I did these things because I wanted to prove to myself that that strength I had that got me sober, you know, was still there. So I've been in this, you know, constant battle, you know, against myself and, and my own demons and um, never really fought against anyone else. You know, it's always me. I was the enemy. And you have Pat, who is like, you know, stepped inside the cage and faced the toughest man on the planet who wanted to do nothing but hurt him, you know, show him that he doesn't belong in the cage with them and, and so that's real comfortable for him. But he's scared at the idea of it's like it's going to be me I'm fighting, though. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's not some other guy punching back. So it's it's been it's made for some amazing conversation, you know, and and um, a friendship that is much more profound than the year and a half or so that we've known each other. So when are these epic events going to happen? Pretty close together. Leadville is the end of August. And uh, my fight, we haven't selected an exact date, but it'll be September, October, somewhere in there. It'll be on the last event of Denver. So it'll be in Denver? It'll be in Denver, First Bank Center. Okay. Pretty sure. I mean, that's the plan right now. It's always subject to change. But and Who will be stepping in the ring with you? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. I'm, there's, there's a line of people that want to fight me for some reason. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious sure who wants to fight dave clark has its own facebook page <laughs> oh my goodness there should be a lottery system involved there sure. should be <laughs> we should raffle it off to some lucky guy that could be your uh part of your fundraiser um, that's right so i'm sure you're are you do you know josh lajani i do i know okay. josh very well and tim kaufman they're all coming to leadville this summer are you going to be there as well I'm there every summer, so I've done. They're doing, if memory serves me, if I've got. June, I believe. Yeah, I think they're doing the the heavy half and the and the marathon. Mm -hmm. June, and I'm up there. There's there's a few different races over the summer in Leadville. I'm up there for all of them. Um, I do the hundred miler every year. Um, the other events, I usually just go out and cheer everybody else on. And wow, very cool. Shake it So you'll be up there because I'm coming up there from Florida. Oh yeah, I'll absolutely be there. My family's still in Colorado because. My my little one's still graduating high school this year. So, um, awesome. very cool. So, as far as I'm curious, you said you ran over a hundred ultra runs. <laughs> How many do you do in a year? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think this last um, I've been on a bit of a stretch in 2015. I um, I celebrated my 10th year of sobriety. So I did, actually did 10 epic events to celebrate the 10 years. And these were all insane things like 
I ran the Boston Marathon four times in one day. I ran Badwater for the third time. It's a 135-mile race across Death Valley. I did 100 miles on a treadmill. I actually did 48 hours on a treadmill to end it. That was the last event I did. So, you know, I've always been, like, willing to to go out there and, and just suffer, you know, especially for a cause. And we do a lot of stuff with awareness tied into those things. But, you know, I've done – a lot, but honestly, part of this year for me is learning to step back a little bit too. You know, I was able to get through all that and my body held up amazingly for me, what I attribute to my diet and, and the functional and strength training that I do. But, you know, my moniker is we are Superman, not I am Superman, you know, and I know that I, I have a, a, a scar on my back from my back surgery that reminds me that, you know, I'm, I'm a human <laughs> subject to break down. So this year with the training at the fighting and stuff like that, it's allowed me opportunity to give my running body a rest. Cause it's quite frankly been pretty, pretty beaten up over the last few years. So I know this will still sound crazy, but this year I'll probably do only do 200 milers. <laughs> only 200 milers. <laughs> but, uh, two 100 um, milers or a 200 miler. Two 100 milers. I'll do Lego. Okay. And I wasn't planning on doing Western States, but I got into it. So, you know, you kind of got to do that. <laughs> of course. I mean, you can't walk away from Western States. So I'm curious then, what is the longest distance that you've run? Nonstop? Mm-hmm. Um, like without, without sleeping nonstop, 186 miles. Wow. I mean, it just seems so incredibly impossible. It does, you know, I mean, like I've, I've, and, and that's the beauty of it, right? Like what, that's the amazing thing that we all are as human beings, that we can take something like running a marathon, mm-hmm. which is hard for any human being to train for and complete a marathon. It took me 15 years of totally changing and dedicating my life to do a marathon. And we can take something like that and make it routine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's the beauty of of not just what we're capable of, but how limiting our beliefs are. And I would have never believed in a hundred years that I could run a hundred miles, much less, you know, do stack them up together and do a few, a couple days apart and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, I don't know We're I think we're, we're very protective of ourselves and, and we don't need to be. Right. We just walk away from fear. Fear is a decision, right? So. It's the barrier. It's it's the barrier. It's a, it's a defense mechanism. It's it's good, you know. But we have to recognize it for what it is. That everything that you're afraid of is probably some sort of a limiting factor in your life. It's preventing you from doing something that could be potentially amazing and life changing. Right. Well, I know we're wrapping up towards your time that you can stay with us. Would there be any little bit of advice that you would like to leave for anyone? Maybe someone who's Coming out of recovery, um, I know there are a lot of food addicts who listen to this that I work with personally. And, you know, anyone who may be considering a plant-based diet or even, you know, transitioning from running to really discovering that they can run, I mean, and and pushing themselves. What what advice would you give someone like that? Well, you know, I mean, the main thing is, it really doesn't matter what we experience in life, right? Like you, you threw off a lot of things there, like food addiction and recovery. And, you know, there's depression and people deal with you know, traumatic childhood and divorces and, and all these things. And, you know, we experience all those things internally the same way. Like it really doesn't matter. what If we're in a place where we 
instinctively know that there's a better version of ourselves, that there's a, that there's happiness out there for every human being. And I think sometimes we need to realize that I know for me, I thought, I never thought happiness didn't exist, but I did think it didn't exist for me, you know, and, but it does, it exists for, for everybody. And I think if we make our journey more about becoming happy and more about becoming spiritually sound and being the best human beings that we can be, that all these other things kind of fall into place behind it. You know, if we try to change who we are by changing our behaviors, it never works because our, our concept of self never changes. So we always go back to what we were doing before. But if we can step away from this concept of who we are and realize all we are now is just what we've chosen to be, you know, and you can change that instantly. And from that point, when you decide you want to change, the decision happens instantly, but the process is gradual. So you don't have to figure it all out in one moment. You don't have to see the way, just move away, move away from where you are now and you'll figure it out. That's sound advice. I think that's fantastic. And David, I want to thank you for your time you spent with us. I always like to end it with acknowledging those, you know, everyone I've spoken to, everything that you've done and helpful and uh, say thank you for them. Maybe those who have been inspired by your story and haven't had the opportunity to say thank you in person. So thank you for them. And I'm excited to see your fight <laughs> in the fall. So I guess. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for your for for your time again. Have a great day.